I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three of today's program is my special guest, Dr. Chris Martinson. Dr. Martinson is a returning guest, although it has been a number of years since he's been on the program. If you are a very long-time listener, you probably recognize Dr. Martinson's name. He is the author of the very excellent book titled The Crash Course, and he has recently updated that, and I'm talking to him on today's program about that update. In the book, he talks about his views moving ahead for the U.S. economy, for energy, and for ecology. Uh, It is a very interesting book. It's a very interesting conversation that I had with Dr. Martinson, and uh, you will be able to listen to that entire conversation in segments two and three of today's program, so stay tuned for that. The February 2023 special report is available by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. The February special report is titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. You know, if you go back and take a look at calendar years 20 and 2020 and 2021, uh, there was a massive amount of currency creation, and that created what I would describe as an artificial economy. Now, arguably, you can go all the way back to the time of the financial crisis and make the argument that the economy since that time, due to Federal Reserve policy, due to currency creation, which the Federal Reserve calls quantitative easing, that the entire economy has been artificial, but really this currency creation really continued in earnest and in 2020 and 2021. In fact, uh, U.S. government debt two years ago was about $10 trillion less than it is today. To give you an example as to how really uh, this, this currency creation and this debt accumulation has accelerated. 2022 saw us returning to some extent to reality. Stocks finished the year down about 20%. Bonds finished the year down more than 15%. And uh, many people have thought you could never lose money in U.S. government bonds had a bit of a rude wake-up call in 2022. Now, I believe this, this artificial economy and these asset price bubbles that came about as a result were largely attributable to the massive levels of currency creation that took place all around the world. Now, as I said, this currency creation started at the time or shortly after the time of the financial crisis back in 2007-2008, and it started because the Fed's tried and true policy that they had they had pursued historically, which was reducing interest rates when the economy needed a jump start, well, that page out of the playbook no longer worked. So the Fed resulted to currency creation, which they called a temporary program of quantitative easing. But essentially it means currency creation. And then of course, In 2020, in response to the COVID shutdowns, the government resorted to stimulus payment, which was again funded by currency creation. Well, the stimulus money added to the prosperity illusion that was going on in the economy. But the reality is it made the economy even more artificial and it made the bubble in stocks and bonds and real estate 
even bigger in my view. Now, I, I talk about this in the February special report titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. Again, you can get a copy of that report by simply, simply visiting the website requestyourreport.com. But in the rest of this segment, I want to talk a bit about asset price bubbles. Because assuming that I am correct and this bubble will continue to unwind, which I believe it will, I think you're seeing the real estate bubble now start to unwind. I think that what you're seeing in stocks is now a counter trend rally. Uh, and I think that you're going to see more downside here. But the question here really that I want to talk about and I want to answer in this segment is how do you recognize a bubble? How do you recognize a bubble? Well, I have studied bubbles for many years and whether the bubble is a price bubble in stocks or a price bubble in bonds or a price bubble in real estate or commodities there are some bubble characteristics that often hold true there are some easy ways in my view to recognize a bubble now when you put a price bubble in a particular asset let's just use stocks for an example in this segment when you 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 price stocks or you chart the price of stocks you see that bubbles looking at them historically are often symmetrical well what does that mean on a price chart it means that bubbles take just about as long to unwind as they do to build in other words when you put it on a price chart the downside of the bubble or the bubble unwinding is often nearly a mirror image of the upside of the bubble so prices tend to end up where they started and prices tend to take as long to unwind as they do to build. Now, Charles Hugh Smith wrote a piece on this topic that I thought did a very nice job of explaining price bubbles. Now, he did some research and I'll share with you my research in this segment also, but I'm gonna give you just a bit from Mr. Smith's article. He writes, quote, should bubble symmetry play out in the S&P 500, we can anticipate a steep 45% drop to pre-bubble levels, followed by another leg down as the speculative frenzy is slowly extinguished. And he makes some of the same observations that I do about bubble symmetry. Here's what he had to say. Bubble symmetry is, well, interesting. The dot-com stock, stock market bubble circa 1995 to 2003 offers a classic example of bubble symmetry, and there are many others as well. He goes on to say the key feature of bubble symmetry is the entire bubble retraces in roughly the same time it took to soar to absurd heights. And if you go back and take a look at the tech stock bubble, it really began to build in 1997. It built very slowly through 1999. Then from 1999 through 2000, it built even more quickly. And then we had what I would call a blow off top. We had a huge, almost straight up price pattern to the middle of 2020. And then it started to unwind and it didn't really bottom until 2003. And it's almost a perfect mirror image as you look at this bubble unwinding. Now, 
Bubbles are easier to see historically after they have unwound. However, as Smith points out, there is a bit of a predictable pattern here. And he says that more, more or less tracks the Kubler-Ross phases of denial. You get anger, you get bargaining, you get depression, and get acceptance. And that's really what we see going on now in the markets, in my view. Now, I believe we're seeing something similar in bonds. I believe we're seeing something similar in real estate. And I expect that we're going to continue to see a lot more downside in stocks and real estate. If you take a look at the stock market bubble from 1997 to 2003, and you really compare it to a stock chart now starting in 2016 and going to the present, we have almost a mirror image of what we saw happen from 1997 to 2003. So the question is, assuming I'm right, assuming we have a bit more downside here in the market, the question is, where does it stop? Well, I have done an analysis of this, which is available if you'd like to go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and read my Portfolio Watch newsletter from February 5, you'll see the entire analysis there. And I would encourage you to do that. Again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. But I see three possible stopping points. And I believe that we're going to see downside in the market here of somewhere between 40% and 60%. One scenario has stock prices dropping about 40%. Another scenario has prices dropping 54%. Another one has prices dropping 62% from these levels. Now, getting back to what Mr. Smith talked about in his article, that this, this bubble path tracks the Kubler-Ross phases of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, we are now at the beginning of that as far as denial goes, in my view. We now have investors that are primarily embracing the buy-the-dip mentality, and the market action over the past four months seems to validate that mentality. However, I believe that there will be significantly more downside, and there's a number of indicators that uh, I can reference with the most, uh, most prevalent, the most popular indicator being the Buffett indicator, which has stock valuations compared to U.S. economic output at about the level that the tech stock bubble began to unwind in 2000. So again, I am expecting more downside here in the market. It is for that reason that I would encourage you to get the special report for February. The special report is titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. I'd be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of that report, along with some bonus information, including my revenue sourcing book, which was a best-selling book, that contains a planning strategy for the current, what I would say, artificial economy. So again, go to requestyourreport.com and request the report. And when you do, uh, I will be glad to send you all that bonus information. I will be back after these words with Dr. Chris Martinson. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Dr. Chris Martinson. Uh, Chris is a prolific author and commentator. In fact, uh, he has just um, updated his book, The Crash Course, we're going to talk to him about today. Uh, he is also the founder of the number one online resilience community 
peak prosperity. We'll talk to him about that as well. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the program. Dennis, it's a real pleasure to be back with you. So, Chris, let's start with peak prosperity. Uh, You said it is the number one online resilience community. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what that means and why they might want to check it out? Well, sure. Uh, Look, our view is uh, that's contained in the crash course, which we'll get to in a bit, is that there's a lot of change coming. The future is going to be anything but an extension of the past. We think that there's some turbulence coming, uh, economic turbulence, energy markets, things like that. And so our, our point of view is people should be ready for that. And the reason I consider us and why, why we're the number one community for this is we cover all the bases. We have a point of view that uh, says that resilience is much more than most people think. Sometimes people hear resilience and they think preppers. Sure. Hey, we think you should have some food stored, maybe have a garden. But we touch on eight different forms of capital. We like to help people get to uh, real financial resilience. We love talking about financial freedom for people and how they can get there and all the different strategies and, and things around finance, managing it well, but also what the opportunities are given this changing landscape. As well, social capital is a really important piece of capital to build up, just you know, not how many people you know, but that plus how well you know them. And we, we build through eight different forms of capital. And because of that, we're really unique. I don't think there's another community out there like this. You can find pieces of this in other communities. We put it all in one spot and we attract a really curious, very successful, uh, intelligent audience. And we have great conversations. So our virtual community is extended into becoming the real communities for people in, in their own physical location. So that also kind of sets us apart. We're, we're kind of like the, the meetup.com for people who see things this way and want to be in relationship with other people who do. And the website, once again, is peakprosperity.com. I'd encourage the listeners to check it out. So, Chris, I think that I interviewed you when um, the crash course, or shortly after the crash course, was first published. Um, I read the book uh, more than once. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great book. Uh, talk a little bit about the original Crash Course book uh, and what motivated you motivated you to to undertake that work and and what's it all about? Sure, uh, this is really this is my life's work, my mission. I I, I got onto a. I'd like to tell you that that you know I did this because I was that smart. I fell into it because what happened was I was sitting there in two thousand and one and my portfolio got shredded and I'm a curious guy and so I started looking into things and. And I was just looking at all things through a really economic lens. Um, I, I found out how the money system, the banking system works. It's not a big secret, but it's not well taught. So I, was, I got my mind around you know, how money is created, what the Federal Reserve does banks that. So I got a sense of that. But then, because I'm curious and I like to connect dots, I discovered that the economy is just a subset. It's an extension of well, you have to have resources. So I started looking at oil, which is the prime driver of all things economic. And peeled that onion a few layers deep and said, oh my goodness, this stuff doesn't last forever. Hey, no big deal. As long as we have a decent plan for how we wean ourselves off of that, either geology does that for us or we do it ourselves. doesn't matter one way or another. It happens. And I found out we didn't have any plans for that. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, everybody's planning as if, you know, you can do a pension 75 year time horizon. Oh, look, you know, social security is good till 2100 and other things like that. And I found out none of that was true. 
And then, uh, so economy and energy are two E's that are in the story. And then the third one is the environment or ecology. And there, you know, you just wander over and whether you're looking at aquifers, water situation, uh, soil, you know, going away, the, where we are on resources in terms of copper, lithium, there's a whole story there. And the story is simply that, well, we're humans and we went through all the easy stuff. Now there's some harder stuff left. It's not going to run out, but boy, it's not what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And everybody was pretending as if it was. And so when you put the three E's together, you find out that our whole economic system needs one thing to happen. And that's for nothing to change. And we just keep growing the way we have for the past 40, 50 years. And that's not going to happen. It just can't. It has a math problem. It has an energy problem. It has a resource problem. Is what it is. So the, the crash course is about putting this together at a high enough level so that we can see it more clearly, more of the forest, not the trees. And the thing I'm particularly good at is explaining those things to people. That's sort of what I guess I was born to do in this in this life. So uh, the crash course explains that. And that's, uh, you know, if you read it the way I do, you come away going, wow, things are going to change. And so I like to help people get prepared for that mentally, financially, physically, all that. Well, I want to get into that with you, Chris. I guess uh, just uh, being a curious person myself from the time you wrote the crash course initially until you just updated the crash course. Um, how has your perspective about the economy, energy, and ecology changed, if it has? Well, uh, I'm, I'm surprised at the ability of humans to, to continue to delude ourselves. Uh, that, that part has surprised me a bit. I never would have predicted that we would have gone through something like the COVID incident in 2020 where the central banks over the next year and a half, collectively, the G7 central banks would have printed over $20 trillion. It's an extraordinary feat that they, they I didn't think, nope, how did this happen, right? Second of all, the shale uh, oil play came in and really changed things for a while. Um, again, for the ability of people to look at that and conclude that that's a permanent condition rather than a temporary condition was surprising. But here we are today, and the reason the crash course needed to be rewritten, Dennis, is because uh, we can look at this situation very clearly now. I talk with oil executives who are shale oil companies. They only have so much acreage. They can plot it all out. They know exactly how many wells they can put in, the precise spacings to squeeze the most out. And they're all telling me the same thing, which is mm, 2025, that's it. Lights out, you know, not not lights out, but I mean, we start dimming the lights. We're going to hit uh, an all-time peak of production on from shale in the U.S., and that'll just trundle on down. We're not ready for that in any way, shape, or form. We don't have a plan for that in this country. You know, this whole ESG will all get windmills. It doesn't pencil out, and there's a whole story there. And so, um, what's changed is the data has only really confirmed that I was on the right track with that. It's taken a little longer to play out than I thought, and I'm sure there'll be twists and turns and surprises. But the reason I, I write this and the reason I, I do what I do, Dennis, is because it doesn't have to be this way. If our country, the United States, decided to redirect some of the spending that we do at the federal level, trillions and trillions of dollars, and we would put that into legitimate technologies that are proven that could address our energy situation, nuclear plants, um, there's other new fourth generation nuclear plants. There's the possibility of investing in something called thorium reactors, which is a form of nuclear energy. 
these things, if we were putting serious investment into that, and I would, I would be looking at the world very differently, but we're not. And so we're waiting for, at least at the public level, the private market to come forward and decide it's the right time to put billions and trillions of dollars towards our energy situation, but that's not going to happen. It's not how the private markets work. So so I do think people need to be ready for a, a pretty ripping energy crisis. It's going to play out between now and, I don't know, 10 years from now. It's going to be a long, slow burn. And by the way, Europe's already in the midst of this, partly for geological reasons, partly for geopolitical reasons, uh, because of the whole situation with Russia and Ukraine. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting today with Dr. Chris Martinson. He is the founder of the Peak Prosperity Community. You can learn more at peakprosperity.com. And uh, he is the author of the book, The Crash Course. Uh, Chris, uh, we've got a few minutes left in this segment. Um, when When you talk about an energy crisis that's got to play out in the next 10 years or so, can you describe for the listeners uh, what changes are on the horizon? I mean, does energy become more scarce and prices go up? Do we not have the resources to use the current form of energy? What, what does this look like? Well, we're in the midst of, a, of an early stage of, a, of an energy crisis at this point. It's mostly around oil. Natural gas, there's still quite a bit of it out there in the world. We have some temporary disruptions that I think markets will clear up because now we're going to be turning more and more to it. We're not quite ready for that in a volume play, but, but that'll come. But for oil, oh, this couldn't be any, any clearer. We have some really big tectonic shifts going on in the world. As I mentioned, the United States shale oil play, we're running at about mm, 12.1 million barrels a day total oil output in the United States. I might wobble up or down, but I think it's basically flat from here on out. Uh, but we're going to need more of it. And meanwhile, China is uh, very, very busy doing uh, everything it can to cement the deals that it needs to to get the oil it needs. It's making huge deals with Russia, also with Saudi Arabia. And this gets a little wonky, but it's actually one of the most important things to know about is that the United States economy in no small part and the strength of the dollar in no small part has been hinged on something called the petrodollar that Henry Kissinger set up in 1973. It was a genius move. It had a lifespan. That lifespan is now clearly at the end of its uh, term. And we know that because President Xi and uh, Mohammed bin Salman are busy doing uh, deals in the Chinese yuan directly. They are now cutting out the United States dollar from um, from that system. So these are big, giant changes at the system level. Do they hit us tonight at 5.30? No, but um, they're coming, and I think people will need time to prepare for them. And if you add it all up and said, God, what's the conclusion? Oil is going to become a lot more expensive going forward, and as a consequence, inflation is going to continue to trundle upwards because oil is baked into the price of pretty much everything that we consume. Well, my guest today is Dr. Chris Martinson. You can learn more about his work at peakprosperity.com. I would encourage you to do that. And uh, he has now updated his book, The Crash Course, which is an excellent book. I would encourage you to check that out as well. I'll continue my conversation with Dr. Chris Martinson when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with Dr. Chris Martinson. If you're just tuning in, 
Dr. Martinson is the founder of the number one online resilience community, Peak Prosperity. You can learn more at peakprosperity.com. And uh, he has just uh, updated his excellent book, The Crash Course. Uh, I noticed that uh, after 11 years, it's updated. So uh, you want to check that out as well. Chris, I'd like to just jump in where we left off in the last segment when the clock so rudely interrupted us. Uh, you had mentioned that Saudi Arabia now is cutting deals with China and the, the petrodollar's days are numbered. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, as, as part of Davos or at the same time, the, 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 the Davos meeting, the World Economic Forum was going on that Saudi Arabia came out and openly said that, you know, we're, we're perfectly willing to entertain other currencies uh, when it comes to, you know, buying oil from us. So um, to, to, to what extent do you think um, this affects inflation? I mean, how, how bad do you think this gets as a result of this? And how long do you think it takes for us to feel the full effects of this? Well, uh, let's see, starting with where we are in the story. Um, it's going to be a very challenging year for the supply of oil in the world. And there's two prime drivers of that. The first is that for the past, you know, 2015, oil crumbled down a little bit. Most people don't remember this, but it was a really wonky moment. In 2020, oil actually went negative for a period of time. What's negative oil, right? They will pay you to take it away, right? It was an insane moment, but but it created a lot of uncertainty in the oil business. Those, you know, $38, $28 barrel negative price for oil, those little moments so we have about, Dennis, we have six, seven years now of underinvestment in upstream oil and gas discovery. So it's expensive business, a lot of capital. Big companies have to like get these $100 million drill rigs out in the ocean and take some huge risks and poke holes in the ground. It takes a long time. So even if tonight the missing $2 trillion of upstream investment that did not happen already over the past six years. If tonight they tried to dump it in and say, we'll spend it all tonight, you can't do it. It takes time. It's a slow business. Uh, you know, Sometimes they've lost the needed expertise and they have to rebuild it. it it's a very difficult business. So part one of the story, we don't have a lot of discoveries to point to because we weren't spending the money. By we, I mean you know, global citizenry. So it, that's already done. Part two is that because of that, a lot of oil companies also got some other religion, including in the shale space. Remember, we were increasing output by 20, 30 percent a year. That's not coming back. Every single person in the shale space now, all the all the companies, they've got this new discipline around wanting to make money. They burned money for years getting the growth. Now they're not getting the growth. They're making money. And because of that, we can't count on the United States shale producers to do anything other than what they're doing, which is turning a crank and keeping the oil flowing. But they're not going to go back to aggressive growth. Related to that is Russia has been cut off from through sanctions from the international oil services market. Their fields are old. They require a lot of specialized companies and services to come in, help them squeeze it, map it, inject, redrill, all that stuff not happening. And because of that, they're having to throttle back production right now uh, because it's not flowing into Europe. And they'll redirect it over time. But my best guess is that somewhere between one and two million barrels a day of Russian production is going to be taken offline and it's not coming back or it's going to come back really slowly. Point being, the next few years is when people wake up to the idea that oil is actually structurally in very short supply. 
And because of that, I think we're going to have to get ready for $100, $200, $300 a barrel oil. And if people say 300 we would never pay that. I will tell you that because of various technical supply disruptions, the East Coast is really short of diesel and jet fuel right now. And it is selling at wholesale at the equivalent price it would be at if oil was $250 a barrel right now. Are people paying it? Hey, you bet. Um, so, you know, the whole idea that oil can't get that expensive because people, you know, would not buy it is not true. <laughs> Trust me. If you had to push your car versus put a gallon of gasoline in there that was 10 bucks, you'd pay the 10 bucks gladly. So, Chris, let's let's segue a bit because, you know, part of, uh, from, from my perspective anyway, uh, a lot of what we've seen uh, over the last 10 years, economically speaking, has been artificial, fueled by uh, government stimulus, fueled by, as you mentioned in the first segment, uh, in the last couple of years, world central banks have created $20 trillion literally out of thin air. Um, it, it seems that we've got this hugely artificial economy and going back to reality is going to have to be really painful. What do you think? I agree with that. It's one of these situations where you live beyond your means for a period of time, and then to adjust, you, you have to live below your means. That's called austerity. Nobody likes it. No politicians want it. The central banks hate it because uh, people get cranky. So they were going to try and, and print again, uh, and, and we all expect that. But every time they turn the printing crank, what happens is they just create more and more billionaires and more and more people who end up on Skid Row in L.A. It, it's a very unfair system. Socially, I think it's become unpalatable for them to continue to do that. Politically, it's going to get harder and harder because people have caught on to the scam. The Fed turns its crank. You know, a few billionaires get more billionaire and everybody else suffers a little bit more with high inflation and all of that. So we have to just reckon up. We square up to this idea. We had bad, bad leadership. We made some bad decisions. And now we've got to sort of face that. And that just came due, I think, in a report that I just saw for the first time last week, where the Congressional Budget Office said something I found shocking, which is they said, oh, that Social Security trust fund that you and I both know isn't actually there. It's just a bunch of IOUs. They said even the IOUs run out by 2033. It zeroes out, right? There's nothing left in that so-called trust fund. So they said to fix that, what do you got to do? And they came up with two solutions. Let's pay retirees less and or let's tax current people who are in paychecks more. And if they just tax the people with paychecks, Dennis, people would have to go from paying 12.6% to 17.9% of their paycheck just so that they wouldn't have to cut the current payments to retirees. That's that's where we are. And you ask, well, how did we get there? It's priorities. You know, the United States made a few decisions and we're going to spend $800 billion a year on defense and we're just going to ignore this looming entitlement program problem here. We know we're running these massive deficits. We know Medicare is underfunded. Nobody's been willing to deal with it. So when we deal with it, we're going to have to square up to the idea that we can't have it all. We can't be the world's police, global police man and spend, you know, as much as the next 10 countries combined. We can't have one of everything. We'll have to make decisions, and that's going to be a real political, um, you know, bare knuckle fight. I think. So, Chris, you're assuming that uh, some group of politicians in the future will, and, and correct me if I'm, you know, putting words in your mouth, but it seems that you're saying that some group of future politicians is going to have to address these problems proactively. I guess I've always been kind of of the opinion that 
uh, this thing's going to have to blow up. And then there's some group of politicians is going to have to come in and figure out how to pick up the pieces with a very ang- angry electorate. Uh, how do you see this playing out? And what do you think it looks like? Is this a 1930s type environment again? I do think that's that's more most likely uh, to get a proactive politician is a tall order these days. Uh, seems to me, personal opinion, it, politicians with integrity don't get far in the system. Um, so so I, I would agree with you. The concern I have is that often the way that a corrupt or venal politician will go about trying to address something like this is to find someone to blame. Historically, that's meant we blame some external party and we call that war. Uh, we've seen that demonization of Russia. Maybe that's a, you know, we find a scapegoat and, and we push it that way and then blame all the problems on them. Or, and this is even more troubling, we've seen that internal scapegoating as if we sort of turned that process inward. And I see politicians doing very dangerous things right now, which is creating a sense of othering us versus them from internal, you know, Republicans, evil Trump people, you know, evil Democrats. They do that othering, vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, you know, transphobes, you know, all that. So, so we see that othering. And the next thing that happens after othering is you end up dehumanizing people. And that's, that's a slippery path. Uh, history says that after you dehumanize people, the thing that follows that is mass atrocities. So I'm working as hard as I can to make sure that we understand that it's not people at our level, you know, pointing fingers at each other. We shouldn't be fighting each other. That, in fact, we really need to put pressure up, upwards, to make sure that the people up there understand we're watching, we know it's on them, and we're not going to fall for this thing where they try and make us blame each other for what's going to happen because it was actually their decisions that got us here. You know, Chris, we've got just uh, a few minutes left in this segment. Uh, we haven't really talked uh, significantly about the third E ecology. Um, can you give us just a, a couple minutes on, uh, on what you see there? Sure. You know, this is uh, from an ecological standpoint. I talked to these ecological scientists. Some of them are in tears because we're seeing really, really rapid changes, um, you know, disappearing insects. Where are they? They're not on our windshields anymore. But when you talk to the people who count them and measure them, they're just disappearing as if there was a rapture, only God took the insects, you know, uh, instead of the humans. It's just a mysterious thing. And it's very concerning. It's alarming what's happening to, you know, the oceans. There's a lot of things to be alarmed about. Um, And so probably the one most immediately alarming is this conversion of of soil, a rich biological thing that a teaspoon of active soil has more organisms than a square mile of the rainforest. It's just this amazing stuff. And we're turning soil into dirt, right? We we strip it, we we mix it, we just, you know, agriculturally farm it in a way that it ends up lifeless and it basically becomes outdoor hydroponics. Put the big macro fertilizers on there, some nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, hope it rains enough and there we go. The problem is this when you look at where we get our phosphorus and potassium and nitrogen from, all of it's unsustainable. And we can clearly see where the ends of those, like they run out at some point. And then the question is, well, if that's 40, 50 years, fine. But where where are we going to be when 40, 50 years comes up? So we have to begin today, unless we want to face a huge future problem, we have to begin facing how we are going to actually sustainably feed ourselves over time. It's a big problem. And no, I don't believe we're going to, you know, put LEDs into little box containers and grow salads, you know, in cities. It's just, it's a non-workable solution 
as the technology stands. So we've got to begin to understand that nature provides extraordinary services. They're very valuable. If the honeybees disappear, we're going to discover how expensive a mistake that was. Um, and so there are things there we need to begin to confront. And almost all of those predicaments, when it comes to ruining the microbiota of the soils or losing the insects, are because we're poisoning them with things like neonicotinoid pesticides and the glyphosate. We're just doing, we're just really, we're spraying chemicals all over stuff and then failing to notice the impact of that. And it's, um, uh, it's getting quite alarming, actually. So solution to that, because I love solutions. People, everybody, if you can, if you have any garden space, any yard space, get a garden Start growing, build your soils, and start eating as much as you can from your own non-polluted environment. Well, my guest today has been Dr. Chris Martinson. He is the founder of PeakProsperity.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. I'd also encourage you to get his revised version of the crash course. Uh, Chris, I uh, really enjoyed catching up with you. Love to do so again here mid-year, and uh, keep up the good work. Love to have you back. Thank you, Dennis. It's been a real pleasure as always. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. And thanks again to my special guest today, Dr. Chris Martinson, for joining us on today's program. As I mentioned, I do have a special report available for the month of February. It is titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. I'd be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of the report. And when you go to requestyourreport.com and request your copy of the February special report, I'll be very glad to include for you a copy of the best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, as well as some other bonus information. So again, go to requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the report and the bonus information, and I will be very glad to do so. You know, when you start looking at inflation numbers, when you start looking at the economic data that is reported, you have to kind of scratch your head. Let's just look at inflation to start this segment. The official inflation rate is now between 6 and 7%. However, as many of you who are longtime listeners know, as we've discussed on past programs, the way the inflation rate is calculated has changed a lot the years. For example, food and fuel are no longer included in the inflation calculation, which may seem ridiculous to you. It seems ridiculous to me, but that's just the way it is. The official inflation rate, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, is also calculated using certain adjustments. There are hedonic adjustments, there are substitution adjustments, there are weighting adjustments. But the bottom line is, as time has passed and these changes have been made in the way the inflation rate is calculated, it has resulted in the reported inflation rate looking more favorable. Now, John Williams, who has been a guest here on the program, has the website shadowstats.com. Mr. Williams tracks a lot of the economic data using the calculation methodologies that have been used historically. While the official consumer price index, the official inflation rate is between six and 7%, Mr. Williams estimates that if we calculated the inflation rate using the 
calculation methodology that we used before 1980 when food and fuel were taken out of the calculation, we'd have an inflation rate between 14 and 15 percent. Now, certainly we all have opinions about that, but 14 or 15 percent, if you've been to the grocery store or been buying things, certainly seems a lot more realistic than between 6 and 7 percent. Now, that brings me to the next bit of economic data that was recently reported, and that is the jobs report. Now, I want to read you just excerpts from a few different sources. So if we start with Bloomberg, Bloomberg reported this regarding January jobs, quote, for the establishment survey, the government's updated seasonal factors may have impacted the headline payrolls figure. On an unadjusted basis, payrolls actually fell by two and a half million last month. That's a lot of jobs to lose. Now you go to CNN. They say that, quote, with 517,000 new jobs added in January 2023 and the unemployment rate at 3.4%, this is a blockbuster report demonstrating that the labor market is more like a bullet train. CNBC said non-farm payrolls increased by 517,000 for January. So what is it? Did the economy lose two and a half million jobs or were there 517,000 jobs created? Well, let me give you some headlines and you can tell me what you think. First of all, Disney just announced that they will be laying off 7,000 employees. Yahoo announced it will be laying off more than 20% of its workforce. eBay laying off 4% of its workforce. A firm, a tech company, is cutting 19% of its workforce. GoDaddy, cutting their workforce by 8%. Micron, by about 10% over the next year. GitHub, 10% of its staff. Nomad Health, 20% of its staff. Zoom is laying off 1,300 workers. Boeing is laying off 2,000 workers. Dell laying off 6,650 workers. Those were all announcements made during the first two weeks of February. Those headlines certainly don't seem to square up with this adjusted 517,000 jobs created figure for January. Michael Snyder comments in his blog. He said, quote, I can't take it anymore. Fake numbers that are released by the government get turned into fake news by the corporate media, and many Americans don't realize it. He said, we're being told the U.S. economy added 517,000 jobs last month, but that isn't true. Sadly, the truth is the U.S. economy actually lost 2.5 million jobs. So how does a 2.5 million job loss number become a gain of 517,000? Every month, government bureaucrats apply adjustments to the numbers that they believe are appropriate the same way they adjust the inflation rate, the same way they adjust the money supply. So the bottom line is a lot of what we see here are numbers that have been, frankly, massaged. Now, it really doesn't matter what numbers are reported. What matters is reality. 
And at this point, stocks are overvalued. I believe real estate is also overvalued. And if you're thinking about a comfortable, stress-free retirement, or that is one of your goals, I would encourage you to get some information to give you another opinion. The February 2023 special report is titled The Case for Tax-Free and Tangible in Your Portfolio. When you go to requestyourreport.com and uh, request the report, I'll also include some bonus information for you. That's requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. Talk to you then.